now when we're we're getting into Europe, I mean that's kind of my purview pretty much. That's uh, you know that's my home front, essentially. In, in France, we have uh, a very competitive scene because uh, Le Pen isn't just uh, a standard conservative. Le Pen belongs to sort of the the right wing populist side of things, and more specifically, sort of very a more conservative and a more nationalist a reaction to the sort of growing Islamization of France. Now, a lot of people might say that the term itself is controversial, but um, really I'd argue that uh, the, the sort of the conflict that comes out of cultural and religious uh, clashes in France it might result in a, in a genuine change in the system, maybe the birth of a new ideology, possibly. Yeah. So, uh, if you, I mean, if you haven't looked at all about uh, French uh, politics, of course, quite a few candidates. Um, well, there are quite a few French parties. So, uh, Marine Le Pen is is a candidate from National Rally. That is the, the party that she is representing. Just for some context, uh, there are, of course, the. I'm sure most of you know that the incumbent uh, is Emmanuel Macron. He is the current incumbent in France, and he is, uh, I mean, I mean, as uh, I guess uh, Thomas had touched on this a little bit earlier, he's, you know, I mean, he's kind of a centrist, you might say, but at the end of the day, he's not, he's kind of maintaining the status quo is what is important. Uh, I think yeah, I would, that you all would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, you've got a, a pretty good scene in France. Now, what are the chances of a Le Pen win? Very slim, I'd say. If you look at it percentage-wise, he's getting uh, between 45 to 48% of the vote. Now, that's with the polls having a sort of a margin of error of about uh, give or take four points. So, you know, you could say that that 48% could magically become like a 51%. But uh, essentially, she's going up against an entire uh, media apparatus um, that is branding her a neo-fascist, pretty much. And uh, besides that, she's going up against every other political candidate. And the, the sort of the center-right is uh, tactically positioning themselves closer to Macron than Le Pen. So, you know, the, the center-right uh, won't give their endorsement to uh, Le Pen. They might even wholeheartedly give the endorsement to Macron. Although I think uh, in the previous election, they remained silent uh, about uh, who they nominate yeah. for the second round. Because the, the, the way we have to discuss this, the way French presidential elections are done, there is one round of voting where all, all parties participate. Now, if a candidate gathers more than 50% of the vote in that round, then there is no need for a second round. It's nullified and they, they win automatically. But because no candidate essentially is going to gather that much support with like uh, four, five, six, eight parties, uh, you know, sort of competing for the first round, what ends up ha happening is the, the two candidates that get the highest amounts of votes go to the second round. Now, Le Pen will certainly uh, secure a place for the second round. I seriously doubt like, they have to pull some serious shenanigans to get the, the center-right candidate. Uh, into the second position instead of Le Pen. But uh, within the second round, we don't know how well Le Pen will do. Now, I have and said this back be, in 2017. Hmm? Yeah. Would that be the popular Republican Union? 
candidate? Would that be the center-right candidate you're referring to? Uh, I believe so. I mean, uh, did they change the, the uh, party of the name? The, the name of the Francois party? Francois uh, No, it's uh, it's the the Republicans, Le Republicain. That's the uh, the center uh, the center right uh, party. Let me see which uh, which candidate are they running? Um, Real quick, okay. I'm not seeing it here. Let me see. Ah, here, here it is. Yeah. Uh, the 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 candidate. Let me check right quick. I can't find the guy. I guess they haven't nominated. I mean, uh, hmm. I'm not seeing it here. Well, while Thomas is looking, I'll, br I'll briefly say for anybody who yeah, yeah. Uh, just does not follow French politics at all, there have kind of recently, well, not not entirely, not entirely recently, there has been a large influx of uh, Muslims into the country, and that has. Uh, to an extent that, is, that has resulted in some Islamic terrorism uh, as well as just other uh, changes of the country kind of to accommodate Islam uh, or, you know, in an Islamic direction. And particularly in the last maybe one, two years, there has been some pushback from, you know, non-Islamic citizens, perhaps Catholics, that is the kind of the traditional religion of France, uh, against that Islamicization. So that's kind of the, the backdrop of this, but, or at least that's the significant backdrop in my opinion. Yeah, um, you know, in my personal political opinion, I don't consider the Muslims of these countries. Uh, um, I don't have much sympathy for them being in Europe. Like if if there could be some sort of arrangement where they sort of voluntarily agree to go back to uh, their homes, I would uh, very much sort of uh, I wouldn't be against that for sure. But I don't see them as the primary enemies. Uh, the sort of the traditional the sort of the Islamist we see the Islamism we see in the Muslim community right now is a traditionalist reaction to the sort of uh, neoliberal uprooting of their community. Because, I mean, what neoliberals want to do on, in, the, in the field of religion and culture is they want to neuter cultures and religions. They want to turn them into uh, these things that just add a bit of flavor, but they don't actually influence anybody politically or socially or uh, in terms of their spirituality. So, you know, yeah, mm -hmm. sure, I believe in Allah, but, I, you know, I live like every other person in the Western world. You know, that's what they want to do. Oh, sure, I, you know, I am French, but, I, you know, I eat like uh, American uh, fries and burgers every time, and I, I go to my local McDonald's and I wave the I don't know the whichever flag I want for whichever sports competition. Essentially, they want to create a, a gigantic like uh, one-world shopping mall. You go into the shopping mall and you. Of culture. 
yeah you buy your identity you purchase your identity they want to sell you back your identity uh, that's mm-hmm. why you have all these kids an entire generation of kids you know these sort of progressive socialistic kids and the, they all like they dye their hairs like uh, you know pink or green or whatever they they get piercings and tattoos and i mean when you put them like side by side you notice that most of these people they, they do the same thing they dye their hairs the same way they 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 have the same tattoos they they say the same sorts of things so clearly these people aren't doing this because you know they they magically through their own sort of self-identification decided that they wanted purple hair no this is um this is the system essentially selling them an identity them sort of buying the identity and then the system's like look i mean i've got every selection of dye for you to wear you know choose whichever one you want you can change them after a few months when you get bored of them. Look, I've got all the piercings you could want. Look, I've got all the tattoos you could want. Uh, that's essentially it. You're buying a, a, a unique identity for yourself. And, you know, these are kids that genuinely have a, a need to feel unique. Because th- there's nothing in their lives that makes them feel unique. You know, we live in a, in a terribly nihilistic and sort of meaningless time. A time in which really almost nothing matters as far as values go and whatever little values people still have they they hold on to them like uh like a dying flame because you know it truly is a dying flame Mm -hmm. that's uh the issue we're seeing and you know we see this with the culture and religion the muslims are opposed to this sort of progress this sort of process rather not progress um they oppose it because they they understand that well you know what is Islam if it is not religious law Islam cannot exist without religious law secularism demands sort of Western social norms to function it is not inherent in the the sort of the Arab mindset for there to be a a clean separation between church and state that's not how these people work and you can say the same for Eastern Europe as well although Eastern Europe has I mean, under the sort of the sway of uh, Western liberal uh, thought for much longer and has succumbed to it much more. But there wasn't a clean separation between church and state. And, you know, these people, they have an, their, their law is religious at its core. You cannot separate that from the state. You cannot separate these two entities. And any attempt to separate these two entities is un-Islamic. It is anti-Islamic. And I completely sympathize with these people. I truly do. I mean, you know, the, all these terrorists they sent here and they commit horrific acts, uh, for them, that's, that's the, the death yell of a sort of a dying tradition in the Middle East. That, that these people are deathly afraid that they'll become like the West. And uh, I, think, I think they should be afraid that they'll become like the West. I think the West is not a place to envy. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, you know, that's my personal opinion on the matter. I kind of veered off into a, a sort of a tangent around... So I'll get back into the topic about France. Uh, I sympathize with these people completely. I, I understand why they do what they do. I condemn any terrorism they commit very strongly. I obviously have no patience for the, uh, the dying of my fellow Europeans. I obviously am not interested in you know, hearing any justifications for that, but I, I understand the sort of the underlying cause. Now, when we move to the actual topic, um, the thing is, the, the neoliberals wanted to replace the workers of the West with uh, essentially slaves. 
They wanted to import third worlders uh, that they could uh, utilize as slave labor because they don't pay them any good wages. You know, they, these people live in squalor, in tiny apartments. You have like 10 dudes living in the same apartment, uh, the same sort of tiny apartment. And, they, you know, some guys sleep in the kitchen, other guys sleep in the bathroom. And all these guys, they go to work just to make ends meet and to get food and, you know, to, to be able to afford the rent of the apartment. You know, when you, when you dig down to all these social issues, you, you find this fundamental reality. But this is exactly where uh, liberalism is going to go wrong. And this is exactly where liberalism has an opportunity to seriously screw up and to fail. And that's what Marine Le Pen represents. Marine Le Pen represents the failure of neoliberalism in France. That's why they're so deathly afraid of her. And that's why they don't want her to win. Uh, essentially, uh, Patrick J. Denis in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, uh, he doesn't actually advocate for this. He thinks this will be horrific, that this will have to happen. But he thinks that it will be necessary to happen. Essentially, he sees no other avenue to the uh, sort of the end of liberalism than a military dictatorship in most countries. That's what he thinks. He thinks that the only way we're going to get out of this, the only sort of institution that is powerful enough to actually defeat liberalism is the institution that has direct force and can apply it, that being the military. So, you know, here we come to the topic of the, the two letters that were sent by, uh, at first, some retired officers and then by actual, like, military personnel in France. And those two letters essentially told Macron in a, in a more uh, indirect manner, look, do something about the Islamization of this country, do something about the ethnic, religious, sectarian conflicts going on in the streets right now, and the terrorist attacks, because if you don't do that, we will do something. We will yeah. take political power in our hands and we'll deal with the topic. Yeah, uh, go ahead. And let me, yeah, let me make a quick comment before we leave the topic of uh, Islamization. And um, I think that you might agree with this. I'm not 100% sure. Kind of the way I see it is being, you know, the French being anti-Islamization simply simply because simply for the purpose of being anti-islamization really doesn't serve any purpose because that just kind of leaves a vacuum that is just pretty much just filled by new this neoliberal kind of hellscape you know what would actually perhaps be productive is being anti um islamization but at the same time cultivating you know christianity and traditional french culture uh, I completely agree. Yeah, completely. Um, that see, that's the thing. not leave the same vacuum. Yeah, that's the thing. If you go and you ask a lot of these radical Muslims what their opinion of Christians are, uh, like uh, unless you actually go to ISIS, which I mean, there, there's a lot of talk to be had about how ISIS is essentially a, a U.S. formed and U.S. funded group at, it, at its core. Uh, but you know, we're not gonna dive too deep into the weeds here. When you talk to these sort of Islamists and these, uh, you know, these traditional Muslims, they don't have any hatred of Christianity. They respect Christianity and Christians as a fellow religion. What they hate is the socio-political and economic system of the West and what it does to their countries. I'm sure if you speak to some fanatic on the street, that's not the take they'll give you. But if you actually speak to the sort of the intellectual minds behind the sort of global jihad, or whatever you want to call it, or whatever they want to call it, whatever we want to call it. Uh, that's the basis of it. 
And I think there you have a, a genuine chance and an opportunity for an alliance between faiths and between cultures. And, you know, I, I know I'm in, uh, I'm in danger of sounding like some sort of, a, I don't know, pacifist lefty here, but uh, that's very clearly not my intention to anyone who listens to what I'm saying. There is a, an opportunity for religions and cultures across the world to unite in defense of their religion and their culture as brothers in faith and brothers in a sort of cultural difference against the sort of the neoliberal project that wants to level all that to the ground. And I truly yeah. believe that if that could be achieved, that would be the death blow. I think that that's an interesting point because, uh, I mean, as much as I believe that Islam is wrong, I don't believe that it is the correct religion. I think that there is, uh, that's an interesting point, that there's a, there's common ground and then that both Christians and Muslims do realize the importance of, you know, morals and tradition and community, family, th those kind of things. Uh, but I'll let yeah. you get back to what you were saying about, uh, about the French and these letters, yeah. because I did kind of sidetrack you, I think. No, it's all right. Uh, I'll, I'll add this point here because we need to kind of deal with it. And uh, I'm really wary of adding points because I don't, I don't want to sidetrack the conversation completely. And I'm really trying to keep my focus uh, very narrow or as narrow as I can keep it. Yeah. But um, you have the book by Francis Fukuyama, the, uh, the End of History and the Last Man, essentially, where Fukuyama in the 90s so, sort of... Um, somewhat naively but understandably um, predicted that liberal democracy will be the end state of humanity that uh, uh, humanity will just uh, eventually adopt liberal democracy everywhere in the world and that will be the government system that everybody will be happy with and there won't be many conflicts that can't be solved through electoral politics and you know people will just accept that and they'll live nice and prosperous lives now, if we judge that through the lens of the 90s, uh, I mean, the 90s was a time of great optimism and for, uh, for a very good reason, I'd say. Because, uh, you know, you had this uh, culture built up in the West where uh, the elites, the economic elite of the West uh, and political elite needed to show, they needed to prove that capitalism was better for the prosperity of the middle and the lower classes. So they gave the middle and the lower class a lot of benefits, and especially a lot of benefits went to sort of middle class homemakers, you know, the, the, the types of people who had a house, uh, three kids, and like two cars in a suburb somewhere. You know, th those types mm -hmm. of people, they formed the backbone of the middle class in America and everywhere else. And um, uh, those people, uh, after the 90s, we see this class being destroyed, absolutely demolished. But even in Bill Clinton's presidency, you see that there is a sort of a consensus that has already been forged. And it's not, you know, that consensus broke down real quick between sort of liberal center-left types and like conservative center-right types. Uh, but, you know, that consensus sort of broke uh, very quickly. But when you're actually writing a book at that time, I mean, that consensus seemed pretty strong. And you had all these, uh, you had the middle class and the lower, uh, the lower class sort of prospering generally. And, you know, there was little reason to doubt that these things would be arbitrarily cut off just because the Soviet Union was uh, collapsed, you know, just because communism was defeated. But that's exactly mm -hmm. what happened. The moment they didn't need those defenses against some sort of like worldwide proletarian revolution, they started cutting them bit by bit. 
And, you know, they, they have been actively supporting them beforehand. So by cutting out the support alone, which I mean, cutting out support for somebody is a, is a passive action. It's not a very aggressive action. You don't really notice it. You know, if you have a sort of a, a bonus paycheck and you miss that bonus paycheck, sure, you understand that you, you don't have as much money as you used to, but it was still a sort of a bonus paycheck. So, you know, your paycheck remains the same. But that has adverse effects uh, in the long run to families and to communities and to human beings and, and their standard of living in general. So by cutting out the benefits they were sort of artificially giving to the lower and middle classes to sustain themselves, suddenly these classes couldn't sustain themselves and they fell into disrepair and ruin. They fell to crime, they fell to desperation, they fell to drugs. And they started working harder and harder and harder for much less, to sustain much less. So really, when you put it down, you know, we had this class being destroyed. And, you know, with Fukuyama's take was that, well, liberal democracy will just take over. But uh, Samuel P. Huntington, who was his uh, teacher, essentially, had a quite a different take. And he wrote that in his book, uh, Class of Civilizations. The idea was that warfare would be redirected at the cultural and religious level. And that different cultural and religious groups in the world, mapped by geography, would inherit different political systems. And the idea was that the Islamic world will sort of do what it does now and uh, embrace more uh, conservative and traditionalist uh, forms of Islam in, uh, in order to combat liberal democracy. Eastern Europe uh, and the Balkans would be left to Russia for Russia to sort of gobble up and turn them into a, a sort of a, a Putin-like dictatorship. So, you know, everything from, from my country, Greece, all the way up to like Poland, and then from Poland to Russia, that entire sort of um, area, which is mainly inhabited by Slavic people, uh, that area would be, uh, would essentially become like dictatorships in the same way that, you know, Poland or Russia or uh, Hungary are dictatorships or one party states. Uh, that, that was the prediction there. Uh, we have to, you know, both of these books, I think, fail very significantly. But, uh, you know, they're understandable for the context of the time. Now, I rumbled long enough about these books. What's important about them? Well, it's important because you see the sort of the mindset that led to the current problems we have today. The sort of the idea that there will be a universal and sort of global proliferation of a liberal democracy and that we could somehow, you know, use nation building projects in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya to uh, turn them into liberal democracies. And that, you know, suddenly we're seeing that liberal democracy is backsliding. We're seeing the return of authoritarianism. We're seeing the return of uh, dictatorship. And I think it really has to do with... Uh, if you go to, uh, uh, you know, Bashar al-Assad's Syria, or you go to uh, Putin's Russia, you, and you do a, a genuine Gallup poll, like you're able to read people's minds and understand what they think about their leaders, I guarantee you, you will find like 60% of the population almost being supportive of Putin and Assad, respectively. These people don't care that these, that these rulers are dictators. They don't care because they see these people making their countries great. And that's what matters to them. What matters to them is the preservation of their way of life and the greatness of their country. That's what they want. They want a, good, a great country, a strong country, where they can live within the confines of their culture and their religion. So, you know, yeah. you can't take that away from people. And you see it in South America as well. I mean, South Americans are uh, crazy about religion, for the lack of a better term. They're some of the most pious people in existence. 
Now you have an interesting paradox there where you have like a, some mafia boss ordering the killing of like 50 people, 50 civilians for, I don't know, uh, getting inside his turf or something. And then going immediately to like the chapel of our Lady of Guadalupe and uh, praying very intensely to the Virgin Mary. You know, I mean, you know, these are like crazy scenarios, but and it's happening for sure. But, you know, obviously not, not all people are such hypocrites there. You know, a lot of people very, uh, you know, they're very tied to their faith. And even those people who are criminals and they do terrible things, you know, they genuinely believe that they will face a reckoning in heaven. They truly do in a lot of cases. So, you know, when, when yeah. you put it down, you have a, a sort of a South America that is very tied to culture and tradition. An Africa that is completely hostile, essentially, to neoliberalism. And the only reason neoliberalism exists in Africa is because the political elites there can, are very easily bribable and can be bought uh, and sold with a, a lot of money from Western companies, essentially. But Africa, as, as a people, you know, the African people, the different tribes there, they, they have no experience with liberalism whatsoever. They, they just don't understand the concept at all. Which is why, for example, they don't support things like gay marriage. They just, they just don't get it. Like, if you go and you, you ask them about gay marriage, they literally don't understand why people are gay. They can't understand it. Within the confines of their culture and their religion, it's literally impossible to be gay, essentially. There's that legendary video yeah, of the, the interview. reporter. Yeah. Why, why are you gay? <laughs> you are gay. <laughs> <laughs> and you can see the guy is like a... Yeah, the guy is he's like genuinely benign. confused. Yeah, yeah he's, he's not like you know. Trolling. He's extremely confused. I think that yeah, and, and then you have like the really priest. illustrates your point. Yeah, the pastor yeah, comes even... in. That, that gets <laughs> pasta. <laughs> <laughs> that gets like PG thirteen. Can't trust that on here, but <laughs> no, no. He but comes that in from actually, the fruit market really... with a. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No Continue. <laughs> no, but he that really <laughs> illustrates your point. Like, they weren't, they were beyond, they weren't opposed, they, they didn't even understand the rationale, and I think that's, yeah, exactly. I think it's a good thing, really, but, yeah, um, but it's certainly a difference between, uh, you know, Western culture and, you know, these African cultures, um, uh, but then back to your point about Russia, you know, kind of a personal illustration, I have a friend who knows somebody who lives in Russia, and, you know, she was talking to her friend there, and her friend, she her friend was like, you know, just talking about how, you know, she, you know, she thinks Alan was really a hero because of what he did for Russia. And, you know, people in the West would, you know, be like, well, you know, Stalin committed all these atrocities, killed millions of people and whatever. And, you know, that's true. But, you know, kind of in her mind, he's making Russia or, you know, at the time, the Soviet Union, you know, power and whatever. And that was kind of what mattered. So I think, it's, you know, anecdotal anecdotal support for what you were saying no that's uh that's exactly it you know uh, these people they don't see things in terms of uh sort of hyper ideologically and politically like we see these things in the west and i mean i admittedly i see these things in in such a manner as well in a lot of ways these people see these things like people used to see these matters before liberalism before liberalism the idea was okay we have a king is the king just is he fair? Is he strong? Is he, you know, getting territories in his domain? You know, the, those were the, the sort of the, the criteria. And of course, you know, other things like economic prosperity and other matters. Here, it's not about, you know, oh, 
was this guy great for our country? No, in fact, a lot of leaders that were great for their countries are being derided as uh, racists and sexists and homophobes and whatever else now. And, you know, the, the people of, the, of their same country Based that benefited... Those. Yeah, the, the people of, the, of that same country that benefited from that person's accomplishments and now, now, have the, now are essentially mocking them and uh, insulting mm -hmm. them from, uh, like, a uh, hundred years after or 50 years after, and it's crazy, you know, uh, for, for the Russian people and the, the Syrian people and a lot of other countries in the world, it's about, okay, we have this guy in power, is he making the country great? Are people able to live according to their religion and their culture in the country? That's the, that's the end of the calculation, pretty much. And, you know, then some concerns yeah. about, you know, can I afford food? Can I, can I feed my family? You know, that sort of thing. I mean, that's kind of the end goal, I think. If you can afford to fund your life and the government isn't interfering to the extent that you can't you know practice your religion you can't you know have a strong community then you know other things are kind of secondary to that yeah exactly that that would be my view as well and um this this goes again to the point pretty much about uh you know we, we can return back to france for example or italy you know this is what is going to blossom out of uh, any alternative system there and as i said you know it might have to be unfortunately some sort of military dictatorship i'm gonna say straight up I, I don't support military dictatorships as a form of government thankfully they're very brief essentially yeah. military dictatorship is a is a transitionary form of government because the military in of itself especially now doesn't have an ideology militaries don't really have a very high ideological views they're they're more concerned with sort of a patriotic and nationalistic goals so if, yeah. if you had some sort of if, if genuinely like the military grabbed political power in france in some scenario in the future and you know somehow they created some sort of military dictatorship that could lay the grounds for france essentially returning to a a post-liberal normalcy and i say normalcy mm -hmm. because for most of human history, these people didn't work with these artificial calculations that uh, liberalism put into our heads about how life should be or how, you know, government works or whatever else. And, you know, it, people could be freed from that again. That's my point. I want people to be freed from that. And that's why I don't look at the systems like monarchy in a, in a bad light necessarily, because they, they truly aren't. You know, when you get into the psychology of the people who lived in those systems, you perfectly understand why people were perfectly content with having a, an absolute king for years and years on end. These people weren't simply mind slaves, you know, they're, they're being derided as like, a, you know, these, uh, these mind slaved people, these weak people who couldn't realize their own freedom. Uh, I've seen some sort of posts on Instagram that are like that. What freedom are we talking about? Uh, you know, the, the people speaking about freedom today are sitting there with uh, Cheeto dust on their hands from all the, from like the junk food that they just consumed. And, you know, they, they're, they're sitting Cheetos there watching delicious. porn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're sitting there, you know, jacking off to porn for like the, the third time today. Uh, are those the, the rational free thinkers that uh, understand <laughs> their liberties? Is that, are you really telling me that? Really? Yeah. Come on now. Yeah, I laugh, but it's true. No, but I think that that's... Um, well, never mind, I won't get into that. I mean, I know there's that yeah, graph okay. that's been going around about the Dark Ages and all of that, but 
that's such yeah, a big yeah. topic that could be a whole other episode. So I won't. Yeah, com- I'll leave yeah it completely now. different episode, man, for sure. Um, but it is you know, an, an interesting go. thing to talk about at some point, maybe. Yeah. Um, see, um, here, here's what I'm seeing about the future. If we're doing a sort of a future analysis in the next like uh, 20, 30 years, right? Yeah. What happens is neoliberalism either keeps sort of beating back these populist movements from both the right and the left um, and keeps sort of beating them back forever. But, you know, there comes the deal of, okay, we only have to win once to establish our system somewhere. You have to beat us down everywhere at all times, all the time, every election, every political campaign. You know, at at some point you're going to slip up. You know, it's inevitable, isn't it? Because if they do fail completely, say say France, you know, they fail completely in France, and France becomes a really great place, then, well, for one, people could move to France, and that might, uh, a large influx of people in France might shift it back, but um, even better than that, people would be able to kind of see, okay, maybe France is actually a much better place now, and that would probably cause a domino effect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, um, yeah, that's part of the thing. No, no, go on. Yeah, well, I was just briefly going to say, um, I do have hope that, I think that in the past, probably five, six, seven years, I think that these kind of populist movements have gotten much more prevalent. Um, They've accelerated. With things like, you know, Britain has seen this kind of populist resurgence. You know, the United States has... And I think France is seeing the same things. So I think that there is hope. I mean, the more prevalent they get, the harder it's going to be to keep them all down. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not a supporter of the the Tories in the United Kingdom because uh, if you look at the way they govern, they, they exist to caution the blow from the right. They exist to uh, siphon away support from genuinely right-wing movements and to foster it into this sort of like limp, uh, a very weak uh, conservatism only in name, uh, where, you know, we, we don't really preserve anything, we just stand for whatever is the status quo at any given time. But uh, they couldn't stop Brexit. That was the, the one thing mm-hmm. they just could not stop. And that was a big blow to them because, you know, they, they, they put all their propaganda at work and it just didn't work they couldn't get their second referendum they couldn't uh get people to say okay yeah don't do brexit even even though they try to get people to tire out from all the the post brexit talk they dragged their heels for like three years but they just couldn't pull they couldn't stop it so it happened and you know they were dealt a blow there but besides that blow they're probably not going to be dealt many more because the tories have sort of you know i guess they gave the tories a pretty like stern talk and now the Tories are like, yeah, we're going to conserve nothing and lose on everything. And uh, we're going to take no action against the left. And, you know, you're going to keep voting for us because we're going to scaremonger you about how, you know, if the left wins next election, we'll all be, uh, we'll all look like Venezuela. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I don't, I don't tell people to vote for uh, establishment parties. Now, I understand the United States is completely impossible. You know, you have two parties. I'm sure you have like small ones like the National Solidarity Party, which is a a little favorite of mine, um, because it's distributist. It's a sort of a Christian movement. But you know, when when you get down to the root of it, you Actually, know, in the United States, there are two that's parties. That's an American party. Yeah, yeah. 
Look it up. I'll have to research that. Yeah. Let me see if I can find it. Maybe I I I misspelled the name. Let me see. Yeah, it's uh, it's probably not National Solidarity Party. It's uh, something else. Wait. That's interesting, though. I mean, yeah. Yeah, the, the political situation in America is very, very binary. Very. Um, yeah, I found it. Gridlock. Yeah. Yeah. I have it right here. I mean, it's the, it's the American Solidarity Party, and it used to be called the Christian Democratic Party USA. It's a, it's a Christian Democratic political party. Okay. Now, that's yeah, not I'll, I'll the... Um, that. Yeah, that, that's not uh, completely uh, amazing, you know. But uh, it, it's good enough, essentially. But, you know, my idea is in the United States, maybe you have to vote for uh, an establishment party. But everywhere else, if you have more choices than two parties, and you can choose other, like, smaller right-wing movements, never vote with the, the establishment conservative party. Never vote. Ne never, never trick yourself into thinking that, okay, if the left wins, it's going to be a greater evil than if I put the center-right party in. This sort of lesser of two evils mentality is uh, a, a fabrication of the system. It's a fabrication yeah. of the system to keep you on the establishment side. The, the center-right won't do anything to preserve anything. So, you know, so, take your votes away immediately from there. Put them anywhere else. I think truly. One, one point is that especially at a local level, you know, in, in town elections and whatnot, you know, voting for uh, third-party candidates is much much more effective because yeah more viable you know if there's a thousand people in your town it's conceivable that you could get uh, you know enough of them to vote for a third-party candidate to actually get them elected that, that's it yeah um well yeah that's the um, that's the big thing there and you know i that was part of my recent post which for me is essentially with the introduction to my account sort of unofficially because, um, you know, that post, I explained all the different ways in which the sort of the, even in countries that don't have two parties, you are essentially forced into an artificial sort of binary where you have the, the two sides of the establishment, the two wings of the establishment, the, the more left wing establishment center party and the more right wing establishment center party. And at the end of the day, they preserve the same thing. It's just a matter of degrees, you know. The conservatives will go slower, the progressives will go fast, the sort of center-left liberals will go faster, and then you have, like, progressives accelerating further. But the direction is one. Regardless of the speed you go at, it doesn't matter if you arrive there at four years or 40 years, you're going to arrive at the same place. And that's part of the problem. You have to derail the process. You have to take it to a completely different route if you want something to be done. Um, I mean, if we if we get now into the Italian elections, because, you know, we, we were going to discuss that, and that's a very important one. The German elections are not so important because Germany is so tightly locked up in its sort of... Um, it's a very, like, stable and change-resistant country. Essentially, the, the parties in Germany have sort of agreed that, okay, most of the system as it exists works, so we're going to do, like, a very minor tweak, and that's the end of it. So even now, you know, you have... Uh, a lot of people moving to the greens instead of the uh, instead of going for the uh, the sort of the traditional uh, center left party, and the greens themselves are conservative on some issues, weirdly enough. But uh, that's not going to make enough of a dent. I mean, I, I think we're going to see Merkel's mm -hmm. party winning 
even without her. And we're just going to get a, a yeah. new chancellor in Germany. But in, in Italy, you a, have a more vibrant scene. Yeah, go on, go on. Germany is a, a rough play. It's actually our fourth most listened to country. So if you have from Germany and you it's on the politics, be interesting, email them to us. But yeah, my yeah. understanding is that it's a very, very, very globalized neoliberal community, one of the most in Europe. But go, go ahead with what you're saying about yeah, uh, yeah, Italy. Sure. In Italy, you have a more vibrant political scene. I mean, first of all, you have the Fratelli d'Italia, the Brothers of Italy, with a, a politician named Meloni as a, as a candidate there. Let me see. I think Georgia is her first name. Georgia Meloni. Yeah, Georgia yes. Meloni. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that the party is essentially the Matteo main. Vini. Yeah. That party is the main sort of um, um, genuine opposition, I'd say, as far as the parties go. I mean, Salvini had his time and he did quite a bit uh, that was pretty uh, good with his uh, Lega movement. But uh, at, at the end of the day, I'd say. Um, uh, that Salvini kind of lost his luster, and you can kind of see that in the polls now. You can see it in the uh, in what's going on with the political scene there. Uh, the the Brothers of Italy party with Maloney is getting a lot of uh, a lot of people over from um, uh, from uh, uh, Salvini, essentially. Uh, this party, um, the Brothers of Italy, I think uh, this is the one that is actually kind of disliked because. Um, it comes from the Italian social movement. I don't know if you looked into that. Did you look into it? Into the connection? There? I did not notice that. No. I did not look that yeah. deeply into the Brothers of Italy. I briefly did. Yeah, okay. Essentially, the Italian social movement was a, a neo-fascist movement formed in uh, 1946 by supporters of the former dictator Benito Mussolini, as uh, Wikipedia states here. Um, uh, because of that, they have the sort of the, the stink that uh, appears in any movement that is formerly either fascist or communist, where people are saying, okay, these people might have moderated their rhetoric, but it's all an, a shady attempt at restoring fascism or communism. Really, a lot of these movements have no desire to restore anything at the end of the day. And a lot of these movements have very firmly distanced themselves from their past. Now, I don't know much about Georgia Meloni or her party, but, uh, you know, this is the same accusation that is sent uh, in Le Pen's way in France. You know, Le Pen, because her father had the party, when her father had the party, it was a lot more um, fascistic in its elements. And, you know, her father made a lot of uh, statements. And, I mean, she kicked her own father out of the party to salvage the image of the party when she became a leader. And they have some strange relations because of that. And essentially, she, she tried to sanitize the image of the party away from fascism. Because the thing is, fascism is a losing ideology. I mean, I've got people, um, I do have a few people who follow me. You know, you can see it in their bios that they're actually fascist. But yeah, I have a few people, much smaller accounts, much more localized, and they get banned pretty frequently because, well, you know, they're, they're genuine fascists and Nazis, right? And, and, you know, they follow me or I've seen them around in the, the political sphere on Instagram. Um, these people essentially believe that uh, fascism should not have been defeated in World War II and that if it hadn't been defeated in World War II, uh, the world would be better off for it. That's the, the basis of their idea. 
thing is though, fascism has been defeated in World War II, and I mean, uh, you know, I have many disagreements with fascism, even on the, the moral and the political level. But you know, that's not the important thing here. The important thing is that uh, fascism cannot win. The moment you go out there and you say, yeah, I'm an open fascist as a politician, you're committing career suicide. That's the end of your political career. Uh, the, the moment you give them that soundbite, they will use it everywhere and anywhere, and you're never going to get any support. So, you know, these movements, it's necessary to sanitize them. And I'm not even speaking in a cynical manner, you know, because I genuinely think that Georgia Maloney and uh, Marine Le Pen are not fascists. Even if they might share some points because they're both right-wing or uh, whatever else, they're just not fascist. You know, however you put it, yeah. if you tell a fascist person that they're fascist, they'll laugh at you, probably. That's my impression. I will make that a lot of people who call themselves fascists, um, pro, I don't think that they... Not This is not true of everybody who calls themselves a fascist, but um, I think that a lot of people who... Uh, say that they're fascists and maybe don't uh, study fascism much are truly um, just kind of hard right, kind of extreme conservatives. Uh, yeah. You, I mean, fascism is actually much more progressive. I mean, we've talked about that before. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that a lot of people don't kind of aspect fascism who maybe think they support it. I mean, uh, fascism has a very clear idea of progress in its uh, thought process. And it also very clearly believes that there, there can be some sort of utopia on Earth for their uh, preferred racial group. Uh, these are inherently progressive traits in politics. That, that's what marks a thought process as progressive. I mean, we've spoken at length about this in the, the previous episode, and you, know, you spoke about this with Anacreon as well on, uh, on his episode. Um, so I'm not going to delve very deep into this, but uh, essentially fascism rejects a lot of uh, actual, very traditional uh, ideas about how things should be done and how things should be run. Because fascism is not interested in the past. Fascism is interested in forming its own future. Uh, here's the thing, with me and other traditionalists, the, the, there is no separation between past, present and future. These things aren't disconnected. These things are all interconnected. And, you know, what worked in the past to solve a situation, well, it solves a situation. You know, it's an institution meant to solve a problem. If you take away the institution solving a problem, you get the problem, pretty much. And, I mean, we see this every day in our lives, you know. We have ethnic, cultural, and religious clashes because we truly let ourselves believe that different cultures, religions, and ethnicities could actually coexist in the same place. And, you know, this is part of why we, we've been policing more. The, the agencies we formed to take care of terrorism were formed because of this religious strife. You know, they were formed to combat Islamic terror, first and foremost. Now, they, they combat other types of terror now, but, you know, that, that was the, the main thing they were uh, combating. And, you know, when, when you dig deep into it, uh, it is exactly the sort of naivety we had that people with completely different moral outlooks on how the world works could live in the same place and you know you look at the middle ages and people say oh you know they slaughtered those jews in that village for being jewish they slaughtered those protestants in that other village for being protestant they slaughtered those catholics for being catholic i mean nobody condones slaughter but but the simple reality the simple fact there is that uh, these people couldn't coexist within the culture these people were inherently subversive to the country they were in 
And the, the people in the Middle Ages, they understood that. They understood that if you don't have a unified culture and religion in one state, you're not going to get anywhere. I mean, the, the, the Founding Fathers tried this experiment with religion specifically, and more specifically with denominations, and they found that different Christian denominations can live in the same place if they are of a roughly similar upbringing and from a sort of a European background, or they're educated in sort of European culture and faith, like, like what was done with the African Americans, for example. But, you know, you're seeing that, you know, you can't expand this thought process anywhere else. You can have, you know, non-denomination Christianity somewhere. Maybe you could build a country, theoretically, that is uh, for non-denominational Islam or for non-denominational Hinduism or, I don't know, I mean, Hinduism doesn't even have denominations. What am I even saying? But, yeah, you, you get my point. You could have, mm -hmm. have um, you can have sort of religious unit, uh, unity in a limited uh, uh, sort of idea in a limited form and uh, maybe you could expand that further and i've written an entire post about that about the the problems with pluralism but yeah. you can't have everything you can't have people who have a completely different culture completely different religion and completely different uh, sort of upbringing and moral worldview and ideology and you know expect these people to work together if you want unity of you know if you want uh, if you want a difference in religion and difference in culture, you're going to have to unite them behind an ideology, which is what America tried to do, behind the sort of the American dream and the American way. And, you know, even that is failing right now, as we can see, because it's been perverted and twisted beyond recognition. Or you, you can have, for example, a country with different faiths and different culture and different ideologies, but they're going to have the same culture. You can have a place where they have different cultures and different uh, ideologies, but they're going to need to have the same religion. You know, you're going to have to keep at least one of these things the same if you want your society to succeed. And ideally, they all, all three need to be the same. You know, people used to understand that now, back in the day. Now we've become very naive in our thought process. You know, uh, go on, uh, speak your point. Well, I think that, you know, this is important because people, you know, this is probably a large reason that kind of the founding fathers um, kind of vision for the United States eventually... I don't ever really envision of, you know, Muslims being you know, extremely, you know, when they, you know, consider this idea of religion, primarily envisioned was, you know, you, you know, you know, maybe Catholics and Baptists and whatever in the same country, and in, you know, maybe you'd have few, you maybe you'd have a Hindu come in twice, but be a large population, you know was what they probably envisioned. You know, I don't think that they kind of can, you know, conceptualize this society that we have, you know, large population believing vastly different. Um, and so that, you know, that's just kind of, that's, that probably has a large, has a large, um, a lot to do with kind of the, you know, the dissonance between their, um, or the, the difference between what they initially thought uh, and how in America was towards the beginning when it was more homologous religiously and uh, what it is now. You know, I, uh, I'm very happy you brought up that point because I, I've been making it for ages, believe me, for ages. Uh, and people just have been saying, no, the Founding Fathers were deists or they, whatever else. Yeah, the Founding Fathers were deists. But the, the, the conception of God they had in their heads was the Christian God, because that was their upbringing as, you know, 
uh, English colonials, essentially. Uh, you know, when, when you dig deep into uh, the intentions of the founding fathers, and you can see this very clearly in their immigration policy, uh, they early on in the founding of the United States, they accepted uh, European immigrants, specifically European immigrants. And they added in the, the caveat of good character. So they were looking for Europeans of good character, Europeans that were moral. So, you know, Europeans have, at, at that point, were either Protestant, Calvinist, um, uh, Catholic, and Orthodox. That, that's what Europeans were. And, you know, when they said Europeans, they specifically meant Western Europeans. So we're talking about only Protestants and Catholics. And, I mean, there was a big, there was a big problem even with Catholics being accepted into the mm -hmm. United States. There was a, it was very controversial. I mean, you know this better than I do, probably. Um, and when, when, yeah, you, I mean, I when had... we look... Yeah, yeah, go on. Honestly, I have family that was uh, like Italian and Irish and, you know, immigrated in the early 1900s. And even at that point, then, you know, there was serious uh, anti-Catholic thought in the United States. Of course, yeah, so, you know, Italians and Irish are primarily Catholic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, th this is what leads me to believe very clearly. I mean, if you look at the Immigration Acts, if you look at what the Founding Fathers actually wrote and said, at their time, if you look at the the way they conceived of God, the sort of God that you know you you know, that is included in American money and in uh, American uh, in the American motto and everything, you know the the whole under God slogan that was added later, you know the sort of the, the God that you swear to in court, you know that sort of God is supposed to be a sort of a universal God, a, a deistic God, but the conception of that God, the sort of the, the cultural understanding of that God comes explicitly from European Christianity, from uh, sort of, you know, European forms of Christianity. Uh, people don't conceive of God in the same way in different parts of the world. I mean, it, needless to say, you know. So, you know, when you get these people with different conceptions of God, when you get uh, religions that differ significantly from what Christianity says in all its forms, in Protestantism, in Catholicism, in Orthodoxy, uh, you end up with a, an untenable situation that was not the intention of the founding fathers very clearly, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we kind of went on a bit of a tangent there, but I, I think uh, if this all started specifically with uh, the understanding that we've become naive in cultural and religious matters. And this is why I speak about decentralization, you know. We have mixed these populations together now. It, it's uh, irreversible from here on out. The best thing we can do is integrate them into the prevailing cultural and religious background that exists in, in the countries where they exist and sort of peacefully assimilated them there. And also maybe we can allow us a few isolated pockets of them to form their own little townships and communities where they're not really going to yeah. bother anyone because they'll have the, the autonomy they need to govern themselves in different matters. Some, something like what the Mormons did, just moving yeah, away I mean, from everybody else. Into, well, I don't know if you're yeah. familiar with that, but... You know, in the 1800s, the Mormons moved into Utah, and they were kind of isolated from everyone, and so, you know, something like that could be, you know, if you're in a country that you don't like, move away to an area that nobody's in, and don't bother other people, and hopefully, you know, kind of other people won't bother you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, you know, maybe we're being... Uh, to a degree, we're, maybe we're being a bit uh, overly optimistic because, you know, surely there will be classes between these communities, you know, we can think about it uh, in that way as well. But, 
at the end of the mm -hmm. day, you know, I don't think our, our intention is particularly ignoble, that it's particularly evil, you know. I think we're, we're being fairly reasonable here by saying that, look, I mean, give these people some political autonomy and let them live in peace and they'll leave us in peace and we'll leave them in peace. And, you know, we'll be ready to defend ourselves if they come for us and, you know, we promise not to come for them. And that's about it. I mean, yeah. you know, that's, that's the best that can be done, really. Yep. Yeah, there's a certain like I mean, it would, oh, go ahead, uh, a certainly kind of responsibility to the whole like kind of your community or the next level larger kind of moving somewhere instead of saying like you know I have a right to do like kind of whatever I want right here no matter how much it clashes with the nearby cultures but you know at the same time you know I'm not I don't absolutely love the idea of just like just move away from me if you don't like me or move away from my community if you don't like it but like there is a certain like responsibility to it like all right we'll move or whatever or we'll you know kind of centralize on a small scale together doesn't sound too bad to yeah me. yeah you know um i think ideal yeah. would have moved i think um necessarily in maybe in so so intertwined them in the first place um so i think moving is obviously i mean it's not the e not easy it's not as easy as just oh just move but that may be the only solution to actually kind of create a stable society or really a lot of stable society i mean this this really is part of the problem uh, you know this is part of the problem with uh, liberal democracy in itself again because liberal democracy brought with it a, a sort of a, a liberal an inherently liberal and capitalistic conception of uh, property a very specific conception of private property uh, in older eras you know you had land that essentially practically wasn't owned by anybody you know M maybe somebody had the permit for it somewhere but you know the land was unused so you had a lot of uh, groups of people that would move away and they would settle on different plots of land that they'd find. And, you know, this was the, the frontier, you know, in the, in, in the United States. You know, you had a, you know, obviously there was some displacement of Indian tribes there. You know, we can talk about the, the horrific nature of that as well, but that will be a, an entirely different discussion. We'd completely derail ourselves. But at the end of the day, there, even the Indians didn't occupy, the, even the Native Americans didn't occupy the... Um, the entire uh, North American sort of uh, continent. So, you know, you had plenty of space you could move to and form your own little village or community. Uh, today, you can't do that. Today, you, you're going to settle, like, uh, in the middle of nowhere. You're going to build a cabin there. And, you know, someday you'll, you'll get slapped with, like, a, a gigantic fine because the, the original owner of that plot of land who now lives in a city, like, 700 miles away, you know, discovered your little cabin and, you know, it's like, hey, that's my land, even though I'm not doing anything with it. I mean, you know, th th that's part of the problem, essentially. That's, really that's why it's so hard to that's, do. That's something that I've many times um, been upset about. <laughs> why you can't just... Yeah. Like, it would be nice if there was a lot more just empty land that nobody yeah. actually... Oh. If you could sojourn around a little bit. I'd, I'd love to I'm just go into the middle of nowhere and set up yeah. a community, but that ends up actually taking like a lot of money because you actually have to buy all that land. 
because it's yeah, not exactly. just empty even if it really is but at the same time putting that money up to actually buy the land is probably worth it if you have the money see th that, this that is, is one of the of... sorry go ahead the, the, yeah yeah uh, this is one of the the main sort of uh, steps that the system puts in place to prevent the creation of sort of parallel communities and I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, pa forming parallel communities in uh, in other places although in the way I imagine it uh, you know the more realistic option is to just uh, go to some village where there are like 50 people on mass you know like bring 30 dudes with you and go into the village with like 50 people and 50 old guys in it and just you know build houses all around that village in plots of land you individually buy as families you know or uh, you could set up some sort yep. of collective fund and you could just buy the lands you know in bulk and you know just build houses there and effectively you're, you're taking over the village you know through sheer numbers you're, you're kind of taking over the village and you're building your own community through something that actually exists instead of having to fund uh, a village from scratch pretty much in the middle of nowhere which would be much more costly so, you know, that, that's how I think of parallel communities. But, you know, this sort of conception of land, it uh, favors people not settling away. It favors people not uh, creating their own communities and, you know, being sort of living parallel to the system. And, uh, you know, having to buy all that land, having to come up with the money. And then you have to consider how are you going to organize 30 dudes and get together and go there. I mean, that's a Herculean right. task in and of itself today. That's the problem. It's not just they, 30 complete... dudes. It has to be yeah. 30 dudes who you agree with, who you trust, who all kind of have the same vision. Yeah, and they also have to kind of be from around there, you know. I'm sure if you could find a, an empty plot of land in Virginia where people could settle, and maybe you have like 12, you found 12 dudes in uh, West Virginia who want to come down to that place and you found like four dudes in uh, Richmond, Virginia uh, to, to, to take there. And, but then, you know, if, if you have a guy from Florida who wants to join in or a guy from California who wants to join in, I mean, the cost for that person to go over to Virginia is pretty prohibitive already. You know, they, 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 they can't make the trip. It's that simple. But if the guy is in North Carolina, for example, you know, it would be a bit more manageable. So, you know, you have to actually work with people in your area as well. And you have to work with yeah. people in your area. You have to work with people you kind of know well enough and trust. You know, you get all these things together. You put all these criteria together. And you realize that it's simply a very difficult thing to do in reality. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say the younger you are, the easier it is, the less you'll be tied down to, you yeah, know, sure. assets. And, like, you know, if you are money, you might not really own much you can probably actually fly out from california with you aren't you aren't going to have to be taking you know trucking around all the different things you own if you're 40 well you have you know furniture in your house and whatever it's yeah. a lot you can't travel that far with all of that at least not easily yeah that's, that's essentially it i mean then again you know we're looking to create youthful communities for the obvious reason that you know these are the people who can have children and they can spread that sort of uh, knowledge and understanding of the world to their children. But even, I think, for a 20-something-year-old, I mean, moving to a village that has been abandoned, essentially, and, you know, having to struggle to find a job there and everything else, 
I mean, you know, mo most people, for better or for worse, you know, they, they take the easy way out. You know, they always take the, the path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance is to move into a city or a moderately sized town and just, you know, work there as a bartender or waitress or, uh, you know, uh, as a chef or, uh, you know, flipping burgers at McDonald's and, you know, gaining some money there so you can, I don't know, go out with your friends and drink and party so you can spend uh, your, your Saturdays well. I mean, that, that's the easy route. And that's the route most kids take. But then again, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any illusions that will have like these big, gigantic numbers willing to do it, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to even blame. That's like, so it's natural. But at the same time, it would take, you know, people taking things seriously. And I think like you were saying, finding it in these small cities is, um, you know, either these small abandoned cities or, you know, up new city. That's going to be kind of one of the hardest things. Um, because at the end of the day, like, unless, I mean, unless you're prepared to just go like full hunter gatherer, you, you do have to have some job. So, yeah. And especially if you have a family, I mean, it's one thing to hunter gatherer with yourself, but it's harder when you have a family that you've got to feed. And I mean, having a family is kind of a whole point of this in the first place. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it would have to be done in waves if it's going to be organized, you know. Yeah. You have a first wave of settlers there who will go there because they, they genuinely, truly want to become farmers, for example. That's the thing they want. They want to become farmers. And, you know, you use the money from the fund to buy them some acres, enough to sustain mm -hmm. their families and, uh, you know, to have a surplus for the rest of the community. And, uh, you know, when you have these people down there and they're cultivating the crops and they're learning the, the sort of the, the farming techniques, then you can move in people who can do other jobs. People who, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, with the farmers, you can bring in some hunters who will hunt in the forest. Uh, you could uh, bring in some, uh, you know, you could uh, have some butchers, you know, who will, you know, uh, care for the meat that is brought in. And, you know, only after those things are sort of settled and you have the, the basics, uh, can you actually move on with uh, the other uh, people, essentially. I mean, you're going to need some construction workers as well, or, you know, former construction workers, so they can actually build the house as well. They can make sure they're on solid foundation, maybe an architect to organize things around, you know, become like the sort of the town architect, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. The whole In West, a sense, it would almost be... Oh, go Pretty ahead. much, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I was saying, in a sense, though, it would almost be like, like, scale societal collapse, where you, you know, you're actually <laughs> kind of through the progression of new society, where you, you know, first you start out with farmers, um, and then you kind of progress to, like, having a little bit more free people that can do other trades. Um, but it would yeah. probably move much more quickly because it's kind of scheduled and planned. And not this, you know, dramatic thing that happens actually. Yeah, essentially. I mean, the number of people I find online who are, uh, some of them are classical liberals, some of them are libertarians, some of them are traditionalists. Uh, they're essentially their their whole like plan for the future, their whole ideal at the moment is to have some acres of land somewhere, to have a house on top of those acres, you know, to to have a house there close by. And to have a, a wife and kids and to have a, a rifle or a couple rifles in the house and pistols to defend themselves and their family from any malicious characters. 
you know, the amount of people who have this sort of like a farmer soldier ideal. That's what I call it, the sort of the, the ideal of the farmer soldier yeah. that, you know, the Romans used to have. And the, uh, you know, the, the early, um, I mean, even the, the people in the early United States had an idea of it, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you know, th this concept, uh, essentially, the amount of people who have it today is more than sufficient for that to actually happen so long as some of these people are willing to put uh, their money where their mouth is, essentially. Yeah. That's what I feel, pretty much. I mean, I know plenty of people, even in person, I mean, you would at least, you myself included, to at least be interested in that thing. doesn't mean yeah. that necessarily every person is actually going to do that, but it's certainly something I think interests a lot of people. Probably, probably a growing number of people is more people become kind of disillusioned with large cities and that, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I'm, I'm optimistic about having a sort of a, a manpower supply to, to get this going in the future. But, you know, I'm still trying to think out the details because, well, I am interested in, uh, you know, if I could ever organize such a thing, I, I would love to. If I genuinely had people, if I, if I knew people where I'm like, okay, I can gather all these people together, they'll say yes, most of them at least will say yes, and we're going to go settle in some village and we're going to claim it as our own. And we're going to essentially enforce like traditionalist conservatism in that village mm -hmm. unofficially, pretty much. I mean, you know, they, that's, that's something I, I'm interested in. If I can't uh, do it with the community, I'll just do it sort of individually with my family. I'll find some conservative village to go settle in. I'll build a nice little house there and I'll just uh, I'll live there with my family. That, that's my yeah. plan anyways. But, you know, it would be interesting to have a community that is explicitly built for that purpose. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, I think it would be, logistically, it would be a big, big undertaking, but I think it would be possible and, and well that the results would be extremely fruitful. I mean, because we've, we've been talking you, about this. Yeah. No, go ahead, go if ahead. If you planned it well, I, I think it could be a... It, for many generations, if it was, you know, run well, it could be, you know, really a healthy town that, well, yeah, I think it could be a healthy town that just was good for the people that lived in it. Yeah, a sanctuary. And I mean, if people yeah. saw that this town is being uh, run so well, and, you know, it has this decent and wholesome nature to it that comes from the, from inherently from the traditional values of the town itself, mm -hmm. then you would have people wanting to move in there en masse. Now, you have to be careful with that because a lot of these people might be bringing in ideas that they, they might not understand it, but, you know, those ideas are going to destroy the foundation of the town. So you're going to have to vet right. people in a lot of ways. Maybe with some sort of like, uh, I don't know, by having the plots of land uh, sort of purchased around the town and sort of giving yeah. them out selectively to people who uh, fulfill certain criteria in like a, an interview or something. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, th this is, um, you know, I think we've gone on long enough uh, with this point, and I think we, we, we've, uh, the viewer is pretty, uh, uh, understands it pretty well at this point. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I think... We've uh, been going for quite a while. Yeah. I think we can uh, sort of recap everything here with a, a few words, mm -hmm. maybe, and then we can, uh, you know, we can uh, end this uh, nice little discussion. Because, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure this, is, this has been running for at least like a, an hour and a half almost, right? 
if not more. Yeah, maybe, I think it's been over two, actually. Oh, the episode right now is at 129 minutes. Oh. Yeah. Well, I, I was actually kind of... <laughs> I was about to kind of say that we probably should wrap this up, because it yeah. has been going a while. Um, uh, but I, don't, I didn't I mean, know if anything. If you, um, or Matthew, have anything you kind of want to say before we wrap it up somewhat quickly. I mean, yeah, I'll, you know, I'd like to add a couple points here, you know, sort of wrap it yeah. up real nicely. Essentially, what we're seeing in Europe, uh, what we're seeing currently in, in the Caribbean is a proof that uh, neoliberalism is looking to expand and it's uh, aggressive as ever, essentially, in its, uh, in its pursuit of uh, rooting out any other form of thought or uh, sort of proto-ideology or proto-system that exists anywhere. And now what we're seeing in Europe, though, is hope that there might actually be something else. Even if it comes through the unfortunate, uh, you know, form of a military dictatorship, say, in parts like France, possibly. You know, even if there is that sort of fear, you know, after that point, maybe we can progress into a post-liberal and a post-enlightenment world, one that sort of understands some of the lessons learned from liberalism and takes uh, some ideas from them but uh, rejects liberalism as a, a sort of overly ideological and uh, incredibly uh, terrible sort of ideology inherently. And, um, you know, maybe we could see the, 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 um, the starting embers of that great fire, uh, essentially. The, the blossoms of that new sort of um, a flower or tree that could root up from, uh, that could come up from, uh, from the ground. Uh, in Europe. Otherwise, what we can uh, look into is the parallel communities that we just discussed. And I, I'd argue that, you know, we shouldn't wait for a political savior. We should just outright, um, you know, head for uh, doing our own thing and having sort of a community. Yep. And uh, yeah, when, when that is done, when we have our little established communities, things will be easier then. Things will be better off then. The only thing I have to warn against, just to keep things uh, sort of, um, keep our expectations uh, in the low, pretty much, um, is uh, that we might get Waco. They, they might turn yeah. us into Waco if we yeah. do too, uh, too badly. You know, if, yeah. if you give them a reason to say that, oh, there is this cult of like uh, radical uh, traditionalist medievalists with guns, in the middle of nowhere, well, yeah, suddenly, you know, uh, suddenly they're gonna, they're gonna come in, they're gonna besiege the whole damn place, they're gonna kill everybody, and, you know, what's gonna happen afterwards is they're gonna brand uh, everyone there as a terrorist, uh, you know, after the fact, and everybody's gonna cheer them on for uh, taking care of that great threat to uh, the lives of people, and, you know, no, nobody's gonna be left the wiser. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, this is part of my problem. If you have, if, you know, COVID for me was the big awakening. And I think for a lot of people, COVID was the big awakening because it, it exposed that liberalism is very authoritarian and very, um, and very heavy handed when it wants to. And we're seeing it in my country, for example, they're, they're essentially making the vaccine mandatory in, in increments. They've made it mandatory for health personnel and they say, oh, well, yeah, but that's logical. They've made it highly recommended for uh, servicemen in the army. You know, when you dig down to it, what they're trying to do is they're trying to force the vaccine down everybody's throat, regardless of whether they're actually at risk from COVID. 
Yeah. And you know, when you when you put it down like that, I think a lot of people see that the mask has slipped. That neoliberalism is a is as harsh and horrific a system when it wants to, as uh, communism and fascism. And you know, when people yeah. re wake up to that fact, we're gonna be seeing a lot of people who can actually work together to achieve some sort of solution from this point on. But the thing I have to say here is that if if somebody hasn't woken up yet, then as far as I'm concerned, they're just never gonna wake up. They're never, probably never gonna wake up. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, essentially pointless to even try to you know talk them into understanding what's going on. You know these people are gonna clap for their own annihilation. Was you know that's what I had to say. You know that's where I'll, I think I'll wrap it up there. Uh, I'm overall optimistic about the future in the long term, but I'm very pessimistic about the future in the short term, and I'm very vigilant about you know what sort of life I'll have to live and my girlfriend will have to live. And, you know, when we get married, you know, what uh, what life our children will have, you know, that's the sort of thing I'm I'm really vigilant about. Yeah, you well, know, I, I uh, could not have wrapped it up better. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. You know, go ahead, guys. I mean, if you have anything to say. No, I mean, that was kind of exactly what I was going to say. Um, that, you know, hopefully these political changes will happen, but these, um, you know, these um, societal changes that we can make, you know, on our own should be done you know right now and you know, hopefully both of those kind of solutions will work together but that's really kind of what you said anyway yeah yeah i would add on about like the kind of authoritarianness authoritarianness i don't want to say authoritarianism because that's kind of more you know of like kind of the liberal liberal democracy um it's not like all necessarily a conspiracy um, it's just kind of, I mean, there are conspiracies in there, but mostly it's just bad people and it's a failure. All the, uh, you know, re, uh, redirecting of responsibility and just kind of makes the government kind of step in. Not that it does a good job, but kind of steps in where the people fail. And, uh. Oh, also, it'd be kind of interesting to see how, like, you uh, decide, you know, who can buy the land around your town, just to go back to that level. Yeah, that yeah, would be I mean, interesting, uh, too. Right? Like, some kind of council. Uh, that's, uh, yeah. That would be, uh, I mean, that that would be a topic in itself about the specifics yeah. of how that could be organized, yeah. But, uh, essentially, I mean... Episode. Yeah, essentially we're ruled by a, a mercantile elite, a sort of an economic, uh, at its basis, elite. And, you know, no matter what nonsense constitutions say about people being, uh, you know, equal under the law, we all know that if, you know, if, if they caught Samuel for murder and they caught some billionaire for murder as well, and it was essentially, you know, same circumstances, same charge, the billionaire would walk free, Samuel would get 30 years. Like, you know, that simple example points to you that justice is not equal and you know uh, part of the liberal strategy is to uh, conceal the inherent uh, classes that exist in society and the voting blocks and everything else to conceal that uh, behind this idea of oh we're all equal under the law and this and that in order for people to not be able to spot it easily but everybody knows that men of money rule this age they rule it absolutely 
And uh, these are the people giving orders to governments. These are the people who form policies. These are the people policies are formed around. These are the people who benefit from everything. And they can afford, if they turn one country into pieces, they turn it into ruin, they can afford to move to another country with no consequences. So they don't actually care about any of the people living in any country in the world because they can just rob them all blind. You know, that's what I'd add to uh, Matthew's point. And, you know, we can shut it here. You know, it was great to hear from you guys. I really appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate you having me here. I mean, maybe we could do a third one if we have something to speak about. But for now, you know, I'm just going to peace out and let other guests, you know, take over the show. So, you know, th thanks again for uh, for everything here. I love these conversations. And, you know, keep it up. Yeah, it's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. All right, well, everybody, that was Freedom Soul here, episode 10, with uh, Republic of Morality, Thomas from Republic of Morality. Uh, go follow him on Instagram, as I've said before. Excellent, excellent channel, Instagram, or Instagram account, I should say. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or confessions, email them to AmericanPhilosophers at gmail.com.